Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 160, The Overstory. On today's episode, we discuss The Overstory by Richard Powers, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 2018 that centers trees in a variety of contexts as the focus of its storytelling. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. And not just a radio personality for Julia, not just an essayist. I don't know if you've heard the news, Ryder. <laughs> I have heard the news. That I, I just, just told informed. you one minute ago. <laughs> We're talking with one of all of Connecticut's top human beings 40 or under, is that the rule, Julia? It's 40, 40 under 40. 40. What do you, live in a hole? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I live in, the, in a resort town. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. You are it's one of the same. <laughs> you're one of 40 people, and Connecticut is a state, correct? That's right, a small state. <laughs> <laughs> you are one of 40 people. They get the same amount of senators as we do, Tom. <laughs> That's yeah. fair. I, I'd like it's to totally talk fair, about that. right? Yeah. Let's discuss that at some length. So you've been named one of the 40 people under 40 of prominence in the state of Connecticut. That's right. 40 under That's 40. Exciting. Just... Do you get to carry a gun? Yes. You're immediately <laughs> given a gun. <laughs> you are handed a firearm, a badge, and yeah. the right parking tickets. Uh, that would be, I. you know... I would give anything for the ability to unwrite parking tickets because it's a major problem. <laughs> so, so what is this? So you were selected and it mostly was it talking about the your theater work, the improv? Yeah, you, I, I don't know how I was selected, but um, I mean, this is a fun, like hilarious pull back the curtain thing for the listeners. So this is for Connecticut Magazine, which is, you know, everybody gets it. It's awesome. Um, but <laughs> the person who contacted me is like, clearly some stressed out freelancer and it was like hey uh you got this uh you got to send me a list of everything you do that that was like <laughs> <laughs> and do it as quick as possible because my deadline's at 5 p.m that's exactly <laughs> what it was like so oh, that's funny i i'm sure it was for the theater because that's how they titled me but mm-hmm. um then i was like here's here's who i am and i listed out all my stuff um so I pretty that much is very nice. Co-wrote oh, my own see, thing. <laughs> let's see here. Um, I'm looking at the CT Entrepreneurial Entrepreneur Awards. Oh, is that yes. it? No, oh, I won me. that two years ago. I was... Oh, oh. Well, I don't know if we discussed this on the show. We probably didn't. No, no I was the runner-up. I was really proud of this. Um, guys, I like a lot of external validation. Um, yeah, it's reasonable. Who yeah, does. who doesn't? Don't I fucking lie. love it, man. Um, I was the runner up. That's why I love for... our iTunes reviews. Todd's the worst. <laughs> Hashtag less Jews. Half a star. Yeah. No. Would be better without Nobody's Todd. Ever... <laughs> there's, there's a lot of would be better without Todd. There's a lot of writer who thinks he's too smart. Uh... Like, I need Julia Pistel telling me how to think. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let me talk Sorry, about my Julia. award. <laughs> Um, I won the runner-up for Entrepreneur of Connecticut Entrepreneur of the Year in the social good category. So an entrepreneur who's actually not a evil, greedy asshole is how I. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, that is nice. 
And that came at a good time because my daughter was like six months old and I was like, am I still a human being? I don't even know. So <laughs> I'm, that I'm was really some of these other people that won that award and I don't think they're deserving, frankly. Wow. Okay. You know what? There's room for everybody. We don't have to disparage other I'm, people. I'm only judging them based on the photos that they used. At okay, the, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> the website. Not anything actually about them. Oh my gosh, do you guys uh, remember? We should do that again. Like our third episode was about author photos. Oh my god, we should. I feel kind of bad about that. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was very judgy of, uh, uh, what is it, T.C. Boyle. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, well you know I what? Didn't re- it was just so, I didn't know anything about him personally. And that was the first time I'd seen a photograph. And, you know, I guess, uh, I think it was Mark Haskell Smith who knows him that was like, he he's a dandy. And I was like, <laughs> dandy. That is a good way to describe how that man is dressed. The, like, there was like, it was like velvet. Like the man was wearing a velvet tie. Or, it was, yeah, well, you know, there was he a always of- wears like a smoking jacket. I've never seen him not wearing like a, like a smoking yeah. jacket. He's yeah. T.C. Boyle. You can wear the fuck you want. Yeah. T.C. Boyle. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Your judgment guys, isn't going to change his career. God damn it. Right. Well, thank you guys for caring about my award. and We care deeply about your you know, award. Super exciting. It's... Will there be a fashion spread in the magazine? There's an old photo of me from a few years ago. <laughs> Does it mention literary disco at all? Yeah, of do we? Of course it show does. Up? Oh, good. So yes. maybe a couple of our new listeners are readers of Connecticut Magazine. and they're yeah. Going, yeah, we get it. That's why we're here. Now do the thing you're supposed to be doing on your podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Julia, Julia got mentioned in the last big feature story about me. She even gave a notable quote, a poll quote, no less. I did. Wow. They couldn't reach you, Ryder. You were in the Azores or something. Yeah, I was <laughs> called upon to say nice things about Todd. It pretty that's, difficult. It's kind of a tall order. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny. I think I was talking about this with the person who wrote it. Um, but all compliments about Todd are basically this: so, like he's a lot, but actually he's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the Todd yeah. quote. That's literally what you said. (laughs) What would be challenging for me is that I know Todd would be very good at saying something about me that would be very funny and honest. And so I would feel a lot of pressure to be like, to make Todd laugh with whatever I said. And that would be, that would be a challenge. It's better just to make me cry. It's easier. Yeah. Just go sincere. It's all right. Be super earnest. Here's the way to go. Well, Connecticut magazine, if you guys are thinking about maybe doing 41 under 41 next year, Call me and Ryder, and we will give you a quote on Julia. I'm not How long 40. Until you... I'm 36. 36? Yeah. Oh, she's got a lot. Yeah. Oh, you got like four more years of this. Shit. Yeah, I'm a baby. Forget. Uh, I just had uh, I just had my 49th birthday wow. uh, last week. That was a tough one. Exciting. Thing. No. Is it? It wasn't, it wasn't exciting. Well, I went and saw Jason Isbell in concert. That was exciting. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but apart from that, I just was like, so this is what knowing that the road in front of you is shorter than the road behind you looks like. Okay. Well, that means I... you just have to do good shit with your life and be nice to people. As you all know, I like to read a lot, which doesn't leave really any time for cooking. Um, and so this is the part where I tell you about HelloFresh, one of our sponsors this week. Um, I get HelloFresh once in a while. And... 
it's really great, you guys. Um, it's flexible. I can change the day of the week when I get it or skip a box if I want to. It's really delicious. There's chef curated recipes every time, which is a lot better than anything I would come up with. <laughs> and for me, the best thing is that it saves time. I am lazy. I don't want to go to the grocery store. And sometimes I don't even want to be decisive enough to order takeout and wait an hour for it to come. So those are the times where I just grab whatever's in the box and make what I got. And this week, I got to make cheesy beef tostadas and they were super delicious and everyone in my house liked them. So it was awesome. Um, but we can't, we can't just save all the good stuff for ourselves. So HelloFresh has given us a promo code for you guys. It is HelloFresh.com slash LiteraryDisco10. And if you use that code LiteraryDisco10 during our New Year's sale, um, you're going to get 10 free meals and free shipping. So this is the time, you lazy guys. Get your get your box, hook it up, and then pig out while digging into a novel. That's what I do. Hey, what I'm hoping for is I can spend the majority of my life reading about trees. Or maybe defending trees, <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's turn to the overstory. Yes. Um, well, this is a... I mean, a bit... <sighs> It, there, there's there's not we don't need to summarize all that much other than to say <laughs> it's, a it's a series of characters page, I've been really it's a looking forward book. to this <laughs> oh. alright well let's put it this way it, the, the basic conceit of this book is that all of its human characters are secondary to its trees yeah. uh, every uh, it, it, it's the beginning of the book. The first third of the book is introducing a completely diverse cast of people who are not connected, but introducing them each via their relationship to a tree, either a species of tree or a specific tree um, or a forest of some sort. Or Burnham Wood. And that's wood. sort of the way... The, I'm sorry? Burnham Wood from Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of... That's the way into these characters. And then the second third of the book brings this group of scientists, arters, artists, drifters, military vets, engineers, computer programmers, and they all kind of come together, sometimes physically, sometimes just intellectually, around tree activism in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that occupies the, the middle section of the book. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, what'd you guys think? I can't wait to hear Todd's feelings. <laughs> so, I mean... Let's just say it super clearly. Ryder made Todd read a 500-page novel about trees. trees um, yeah. That's what I've trees. been excited about um, trees. Hearing, hearing Todd's trees. reaction to. But go ahead. Well, yeah. let me start by saying I'm actually a big fan of Richard Powers. So, uh, though I had not bought this book because it sounded like uh, what it would be like to watch a tree grow. To read it. <laughs> I am a fan of what Richard Powers does. I like the way he writes. I like how he, in many of his books, has a you know super wide tableau and manages to pull it all together. But man, this is a book who two thirds of it is summary. Mm. It's, it's like two. So you you got to have a lot of endurance um because while it's wonderfully written and i actually learned a lot it's like it's a good 250 pages before something happens mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. and that's that's a lot um so 
like the first hundred pages or so, there's it's all fascinating. So it's it's broken up. Uh, the first, I think, I want to say twelve chapters or so is broken up by um, each in the point of view of one one character. Sometimes it's two chapters in a row or in the point of view of that one character. Um, but I, I think it's nine points of view, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? At least. And so, well, it's never actually first person. No, no, no. It stays it's, in third person, it's right? It's nine. But it's third person. Yeah. Third person, limited omniscient, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, with with in the for the first two hundred fifty pages or so, it's like you're you're searching for the connection, and he doesn't deliver it. He does, of course, obviously in the next two hundred fifty pages, but it's a lot to get through intellectually. It's a lot to get through sort of emotionally, and it's he does a couple things that are weird there's the narrative voice of the indian character who's the computer programmer i had a real problem with mm-hmm. um i felt it bordered on cliche um there's a big section which is essentially just a, a long environmental essay in the middle of the book mm-hmm. um but by the end of the book i was moved and um knew more about trees than I ever really had in their connectivity to, to us and to each other. And in a way I was kind of reminded of, um, life of Pi at the end of it. Not, not for obvious reasons, but for the sort of the intellectual experience of reexamining in life of Pi, my relationship to zoos and here, my relationship to this thing that I sort of, um, you know, see every day. Like I'm looking at a tree right now outside my window and I don't really think of it as, a living organism necessarily or a, a thing that is interconnected to us but of course without trees we don't get to breathe um so i was i both enjoyed it and was frustrated by it and was bored by it um but ultimately i don't know why it won the pulitzer prize i think that's the larger thing i think there's there was more profound work that year than overstory mm. wow what did you think julia okay <laughs> well uh, first of all, this quote on the back just made me laugh. Uh, it's not not supposed to be a joke, but Anne, <laughs> Anne Patchett says the best novel ever written about trees. Period. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> like, okay. Um, so I, I, I really liked it. Is the short answer. Um, but I had this strange experience where I was. I did not know if it was going to converge, if the characters would converge in time or if it would be just multiple narratives. Um, and I really enjoyed the first hundred pages or so that were, they were all, they were really short story like um, yeah. chapters. Mm-hmm. And then when they did converge, it felt, I had the opposite experience of you, Todd. I was like, yep, Oh, I want to hear more about like multi, multiple generations all interacting yes. with this tree or, um, a life being completely derailed by a tree or whatever. Um, right. So it was, however, kind of fun and magical to feel 90s environmental activism yeah. taken so <laughs> yes, seriously. Sure. Um, yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's played as a joke now, which is the saddest right. thing ever. And I've played it as a joke. But to feel all the history leading up to that moment in time in American history... Um, was cool all the tree sitting was a thing like that was a thing yeah exactly um 
so I love that. But <laughs> I said before we started recording, so this this week I also saw an insane uh, halfway finished musical version of Moby Dick. <laughs> it was four what's hours the, long. What's, what's the half? Like, yeah. we don't know how to do a whale. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, just it, it was just crazy. It was like. Obviously, they're going to try to make it to Broadway. Um, the production team has brought other things to Broadway. But it's four fucking hours long. It's four hours long. Oh, my God. Nope. And, it's and is it telling the story of Moby Dick? And, but also if anyone's read Moby like, Dick, we know you haven't, Todd. But there's not actually <laughs> any plot, really, in Moby Dick. There's, like, right. three things that happen. Um, <laughs> so this... It was great reading this book coming off the reminder of what Moby Dick is like and what it's about. And this is the Moby Dick of trees. That's what this book is. Yeah, it really is. You're like pretending that you're involved with this plot, but it's really there to, you know, invite you to really go deep on every imaginable kind of tree right outside your window and to get you to see your own world differently. And Mm -hmm. if that's the goal, I mean, I was completely you know convinced well i've who who wouldn't say like trees are important you know but am i gonna go outside and walk down my street and actually look at my trees and think about what kind of trees they are and think about tree diseases and um all that stuff of course i am of course I am. you know what you know what's funny is i have a, a graduate student named stephanie who's writing a really sort of interesting environmental novel i'm gonna actually tell her to read this book um but she was telling me the story about how she had been traveling around the world and she got really interested in environmentalism and she saw this tree, I want to say like it was in Australia and it was the most remarkable tree she'd ever seen. And she took like 800 pictures of it. She couldn't believe it. And then she got home and she looked out her window and there was one in her backyard. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's classic. That's amazing. I mean, there's a scene in here where one of the characters is a college student and it just says like she walked by a tree of course she didn't notice it at all um right. and you know if you if you force me to draw a map of all the trees on my street um i would not be able to do it uh i oh my house is actually on the site of a very very famous american tree the charter oak which is a big connecticut thing um but it should be everyone should know what this is there was an oak right on the hill that my house is on um and the the story is that like the first draft of the constitution was hidden in a knot in the tree so it wouldn't be able to be found and destroyed so what i've never heard this that's the yes, we do that ever. we should do that again how come they didn't <laughs> uh, richard power should have put that into the uh, book that i know like I was a story worthy of this book yeah uh, it's i mean it's a big deal here it's on our quarter uh connecticut's quarter the charter oak yeah so i grew up in walnut creek in uh, northern california which was a town who got its name from the walnut trees but by the time i was (laughs) able to appreciate them (laughs) they'd all been plowed over and uh (laughs) turned over to subdivisions so Ryder, what did you think before we get into all our tree histories (laughs) (laughs) did we lose Ryder? no am i i'm here what'd you you think of the book Ryder? Yeah, what what were your thoughts, Ryder? Uh, yeah, I think it's a masterpiece. I mean, I'm I I, I like. <laughs> there's not a better book written for me. 
I mean, I, I grew up in a redwood forest. I have a very personal relationship to redwood trees. I was up there in the 90s while the protests were going on. Um, it was always a huge part of my life. And in college, I wrote an essay in my, you know, philosophy 101 class about tree sitting and the ethics of tree sitting and uh, <laughs> focusing on Julia Butterfly, who is clearly oh, the inspiration. Oh, God, yes, yes. So I know all of this shit. And, and um, I really didn't know where this, I didn't know that much about it. I just bought it because of the title and because somebody told me it was focusing on the trees. And I was like, that's weird. And so I think it's incredible. And I, um, yeah, I, I was blown away by it. I, um, but I, I, like Julia, I, I feel the opposite of you, Todd, that I really, really loved those opening, that opening 150 pages. When the novel became more conventional, it became less interesting to me. And I thought that as a writer too, his in-scene work was not as good as his sort of summary and big, oh, big picture work. Yeah. And so it's better than, yeah. than the scene. Works, and so I would almost sure. just wish he had stayed in that, in that mode a little bit as the characters became more sort of, you know, even the way the characters talk to each other. Um, you almost, you almost don't like when I'm thinking about the book now, having, you know, a little time away from finishing it. Um, I don't really think of the characters in scenes together. No, uh, it's like it, it, even when they are, it's 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 well, more his about scene work is melodramatic. You know, yeah, I guess that's what it is. Um, and and it's almost, um, and this is why I think like I was surprised it won the Pulitzer's because the the scales are off, right? Like the the petty, interesting fighting of characters compared to the existence of planet Earth right. seems seems foolish, right? So, like, when the college student comes back to her apartment and is pissed off that someone, you know, ate her bread or smoked her weed or whatever, like, who gives a fuck? You know, there's... <laughs> we're getting yeah, But isn't the that trees. the point? Isn't that the point? Yeah, it, it's the point, but he just doesn't write it very well. He, he, he's not a great character writer. Um, mm -hmm. He's a great big thinker writer. And this yeah. is true also in, um, in Echo Maker, which I really liked. Um where you know he the the science or the ideas or the philosophy and and the logic of the characters far exceeds meeting them in real life which i suspect is what it's like for anyone to meet the three of us <laughs> <laughs> the idea of us is much better than much the, better. the reality yeah yeah so the um, way oh finish finish your thought uh, well ahead. i think that the way that i experience what you're saying todd is that his omniscient voice was more interesting. So, yeah, like yeah. there were times where he would write things about a tree or history or something, and it was in a chapter where that character would never think that way. Um, and I, <laughs> right. I was like, "There's no way this person is like looking grandly out on this field or whatever." Um, and I just wanted to be with his voice. You know, um, mm. and he doesn't link it too hard into their heads. And occasionally he would say like, and this person wasn't paying attention like that at all. Right. Right. Um, and I just wanted to spend more time with that almost <laughs> Morgan Freeman narrating a documentary <laughs> voice um, <laughs> than some of the individual characters. But other characters like I love the Mia character um, and a few others I did really like. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. it's hard, uh, not that he needs my sympathies, but to write a dozen unique, deep characters all yeah, grappling with their place in the cosmos. 
But I also think that, like, but I, I think that 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 all works in the service of his point, which is so much of this book is about getting to a sort of deeper earth time, mm-hmm. you know, to, yeah. to, to a, the, a tree scale of time. Um, you know, he opens the, the opening chapter is following this, this chestnut tree where this family, the whole family are, I don't know how, H O E L, how you would pronounce that, but oil, maybe Hoyle, maybe that family. Um, there's the, a man starts taking photographs of the tree every day or month or I forget. So they end up having this time lapse through three different generations of the tree growing. Um, and that, you know, sort of set the, the the theme of the book to me, which is that we're we're going to get involved in these human lives, but we're supposed to see them as small and petty in comparison to the lives of these trees, and mm-hmm. that that's really hard to pull off, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that a lot of what like a, a lot of the the things you guys are describing actually work in in service of that, um, you know. Sure. And and I think that that there is a point, especially at the if you, at the end when when somebody ends up in a prison sentence and mm-hmm. and 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 it's a long prison sentence and you're supposed to you feel this human pain of like well, you couldn't possibly you know that you're going to go away for that long and that character is, it, it sort of puts it in terms of tree time and right. you've been reading 500 pages of a book that kind of has set you up to see it in the same perspective i thought that was really um i don't know it's that's tough to pull off but i i think I don't know. There's there's a component to this book that is also um, fascinating to me, and I think we're going to see more and more of, which you already mentioned, Todd, a little bit of. Is like, you know, this is this this is of really ethical importance right now. <laughs> like, right. we need to we need to save the world. Like, and this is it's it, we are killing it. it. We are we have been letting this go for the last you know couple generations and i think more and more we're going to see movies and books and everything sort of addressing climate change and addressing the environment um as the norm like as the types of stories we need because it's it's becoming more and more you know well i I think you'll see it to in in a i mean look it, it depends on the the acceptance of a certain portion of our uh the american society to actually believe that it matters you know, like they aren't going to make. Well, a but ton as as the weather as the weather actually stuff. affects our life, though, like I mean, that's right. the that's it, the key the difference. Is like, right? Like I'm now looking at my son and saying, "Oh, within his lifetime, you know, this is not going to be here anymore. California right. is is going to burn every year now." Like I've right. I I know three people who have lost their homes to wildfires in California. That's you know, one of them is in my immediate family. Like this is it's too. It's it's such a reality that like back in the '90s it wasn't. You know when I when when we were talk about saving the redwoods and the headwaters and all that in the '90s, it felt it felt like these were crazy people, right. and these were you know and and they were to a certain extent. And that's what this book is sort of doing is saying like actually they probably weren't that crazy. They were actually seeing things on a scale and in the in a context that was accurate and scientifically right. correct and we're just catching up to it now with mudslides and you know burning we're, we're so now we have con- to deal with it. Entire continent is on fire right, right. now. There's an entire continent right. on fire. Right. Um, and that's why I mean I I also really like what you were saying Julia because I felt the same way about you know, taking that sort of '90s environmental, like where they give themselves these cheesy names, and mm. there's this sort of, you know, like 
I used to roll my eyes at that crap too. Um, and I really like the way that this book didn't shy away from that, but actually embraced yeah. that and like yeah. made that, you know, renamed the characters at that point. Um, to, and didn't, you know, didn't, it, it, you know, you, you can't help but feel like, Oh, really? You're going to call yourself after tri Okay. Um, but you know, <laughs> your, your own cynicism gets turned on you by this book. I feel like. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that, Yes, I loved I love everything you're saying, Ryder. Um, and I think another reason that the earlier section worked for me too is, you know, we all know redwoods are like cool and amazing, you know. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. to focus on those or other large piney trees, uh, you can tell I'm an expert, um, is <laughs> great and it's moving and powerful, but to me it's more more moving to say what is that shrimpy little tree in my yard and right. how long has it really been there and what would it take to replace it and all of that stuff so yeah. i'm just like i have a thirst for this you know i've actually had yeah. it on my like oh i should learn about new things list like learn names of trees what am i walking by absolutely um yeah and I, I and I love I, that. I think him. I think him also. I mean, he repeats a, a fair amount. And I mean, this is the challenge. I think in a five hundred page book, it, when you have a theme, and he certainly has a theme, you end up hitting it pretty hard. And so I, you know, he probably said ten times that tree older than Christianity, and you're like, I got it, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, and, and so that's a little bit of my problem. Is that, you know, even like these are things that uh, I, I'm naturally sort of drawn to as your, you know, your general liberal. Um, like, yeah, we should save the trees. We should do this for the environment, all that. But at some point it becomes a little polemical. And then where does it move from entertainment into ideology? And do I want to spend my free time reading about this thing that is no longer about entertainment, but it's about education? I don't mind reading for education, obviously. Um, but there's that there's that shift, you know, in the in the middle of the book where before it really becomes super melodramatic. And and when I say melodramatic listeners, what I'm talking about is suicides, uh, marriage breakups, prison sentences, FBI traumatic injuries, FBI, like just it's like literally all in a row, like, like really fast. Yeah. At the end. <laughs> it's like he was yeah. he was changing the channels through cable. He's like, oh, Homeland. OK, I'll take something from Homeland. Oh, um, uh, happiness. No, you would, from happiness. Well, but, you know, it's all based on real stuff. Like all of that, um, that that case of the arsonists turning on each mm -hmm. other, in, that's all true. Um, that um, so he really did his research, and it's based on a, a couple of very high profile cases of um, environmental radicalists from the '90s and then the early aughts. So that's all. That's totally true. Yeah. Um, and and it, but the thing is, is that because of its proximity to each other, these these things that are happening, it does just sort of feel like it becomes episodic. Where before yes. it had been um, more philosophical, yeah. and so it, it, in a way, it's it, it is in fact like experiencing time itself, where like there's the the slow blooming of things, and then there's the destruction of the thing, and then the appreciation of the thing, and then someone has to quietly sit in a cell and ask themselves what they did for the freedom of other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you can see what what Powers is doing in in that regard. The the stuff that I felt really drawn to were some of the sort of surprising things like, um, 
what what is what does he call those where where they've have the forests on either side, but in fact it's like been clear cut on the inside of it. Oh yeah, when you just yeah, where essentially like people are trying to make you Fake feel like woods. you're in a forest, but yeah. in fact they've already denuded it, mm-hmm. so that people feel like they're still in what was it Potemical or something like that. Um, but like stuff like that where. There's also this sort of charade of environmentalism that's going on among the people who actually care about it. And, like, that's disturbing, obviously. But, you know, I also drive a giant German car which guzzles gas, so... Right. You know, so we we have these... (laughs) Well, I didn't say you did. I said I did. (laughs) You know, know, I want to go back to what you were saying about the... that that the, the novel becomes polemical. I I think it I, I agree with you, but I don't think it does in the service of like it, I don't I, what I like about it is that it didn't feel like their activism or a particular form of their activism was was right mm-hmm. or bad. It really what it becomes polemical about is the power of the stories and storytelling right. and mm-hmm. and and I loved that. I loved that you know really like at the heart of this there's this conversion story of this guy who who is a psychologist going to study yeah. the environmentalist and then he ends up becoming one of the most radical. And yeah. that conversion story I thought was more, you know, and, and at one point somebody asks him, you know, as a psychologist, as a professor or whatever, they're like, how do you change people's minds? And he goes, it's never an argument. It's always a story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's other stuff in the, in this, in this book too, a lot, a lot of, a lot of myth references and talking about mm-hmm. myths. And at one point he has this line, um, Myths are basic truths twisted into mnemonics, instructions posted from the past, memories waiting to become predictions. And I loved that stuff. Like, I thought that's where that's where the urgency of this book really came through is like, he's basically writing a novel to 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 make you care about trees so that we can keep telling stories like this in order to raise awareness. He's not saying like, mm-hmm. go out there and chain yourself to a tree necessarily. Right. I'll, you know, if you're inspired to, maybe you should, but like, just think in these terms and recognize the scale at which your life is and, and all those personal feelings you have about your divorce or your child or all that stuff, um, you know, is in a, is in a, is part of a greater context. Um, and that totally was successful for me. Um, it really, it really messed with my head, you know, and made me sad in a way that I wasn't yeah. like, I wasn't as sad when people died or committed suicide or went to jail. Um, it made me sadder in this like sort of, I mean, really dark way about the state of earth, the earth. Um, and <laughs> meanwhile, you were reading this on vacation in Bali. Exactly. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. On the shores of Bali. Right. <laughs> but I think that that sadness is, is, is important. Like we need to be aware of that in a way that I don't know if we we are enough and haven't been in our lives. And that's like, that's a new type of, of storytelling that, that mm-hmm. we need to, you know, and Moby Dick did it. Moby Dick was about environmentalism and industrialization right. more than anything. I mean, he knew we were fishing out the oceans yep. back then. And right. um, so I think like great works of literature invariably touch upon this, but I do feel like we're entering an era where this is going to be one of our defining stories um is like how do we stop this and and try and reverse the tide of of what humans have been doing for the last 150 years because it's it's horrible and i think another huge strength of this novel is truly relentlessly showing us how trees are everywhere in our life even if we ignore them like one of my favorite lines was one of the characters like in a motel for a hot minute 
and he misses breakfast, but the um the concierge gives him the line is like for breakfast he has a piece of chocolate, an orange, and a cup of coffee. Three miracles from trees. <laughs> it's like that's right. it. And you're like, ah! um, like nothing that we do is untouched yeah. by the this presence. And and another uh, line is something like I'm totally paraphrasing. It's much better written, but it's like wood is the cheapest miracle you can buy. Um, it's yeah. still really right. cheap. It makes everything. Um, so beyond like, of course, natural beauty and the air we breathe, you know, we are using wood for shampoo and all this other stuff that's constantly mentioned. So I think, Ryder, for me, some of that sadness that is so overwhelming is like, how do we extract ourselves from this? Because it makes up our entire world and we're all participating in it right? Um, at every moment. Well, well, then there's the bit, though, with um, the kid who becomes a computer programmer and who makes this video game. Um, and I, it was a weird thing as I, as I was reading it, I was like, well, this is actually more effective than Avatar was. <laughs> and it yeah. makes me want to save trees reading about this person and their relationship to trees. But it's sort of a similar thing. Like, like Avatar, and I didn't expect you talking about Avatar today, <laughs> <laughs> but like Avatar positioned itself in the same way that Overstory has. Yes. As a great narrative story about protecting the essence of humanity through a tree, basically, yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. or the essence of a, a of a population, not humanity and Avatar. Right. Um, and like the message of that was so overbearing that like midway through the movie you're just like oh god i just want to cut my eyes out of i I get it james cameron we need to save the trees here at least uh, richard powers is doing it in such a personal and philosophical way that he forces you to ask about your role in this yeah and i think that's a really it's a far more um i think it's a far more convincing way to look at your role in the in the natural world than than in a movie like avatar which tries to do precisely the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That storyline with the um the guy creating the video game, that is really fascinating. I yeah. did not know where that was going and it also it doesn't end up connecting in the same way as the other stories. Right. But I thought it was doesn't ever a really intersect. No, well right at the end I, I think he he brings one of the the scientists to like he's the he's the one hosting the seminar, right? Right. So right. but he's yeah, I mean it's it, it's a really interesting sort of thematic element inserted that I, I guess is Power's way of sort of t- using this internet like multi uh, like world building. It's it's sort of like a World of Warcraft mm. game that this guy creates and becomes a huge success, and it becomes even in the virtual world like an act of colonialization and <laughs> industrialization and. I found that really interesting that he goes full circle. And I mean, that's the only reason I could see that that's inserted is that while human beings feel like, oh, we can create virtual spaces and live virtually and we don't need the earth. um, Even in our virtual spaces, we do, we kind of come back around to needing, I I don't know what it was. It was a very like weird, and I'm still kind of trying to wrestle like where I think that fits into this whole thing. But basically like this guy who has no legs and is programming this fictional world for himself comes back around to still needing the real world. Is that like Mm -hmm. kind of, 
and yeah. wanting physical reality and trees and and nature um, because you can't even in a virtual space just endlessly create that um, it's it ends up being destructive in a way. Um, I found that you have, really you have to build a natural world or at least an appreciation for the natural world around even your fake world. I mean, I think about sometimes like like Wendy, my wife, um, plays this online game where it's a farming game online where she has to like, you know, <clears throat> have trees grow and make fruit and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And, and I'm like, well, she's not doing that in our backyard, but she's having to do it on the right. video game. She's having to be entertained by the idea of nature. Right. Um, it's an, I mean, it's it's a very it's a very strange thing the way that the internet um when it works the best is make is reminding us of reality mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um right. like the thing that that has made facebook so successful is you get to actually sit around and have conversations with smart people or or not smart people um whenever you want to have it um which is like you know going into the public square and actually engaging with a stranger and that's that's that helps our cortisol you know it it turns on our emotions all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. um but it also makes it easier for you to disappear into unreality so there's a an interesting paradox that i think powers is talking about quite a bit here um but so but here's my my just sort of bigger question when i read books like this is is this entertainment i don't even know like were you entertained by it I think that for me, okay, so the coding stuff is a great example because I have a feeling I know more about this world than you guys do based on my (laughs) marriage. Um, (laughs) But many sections of this book were very well-researched deep dives into particular areas of our culture that Mm -hmm. are just very fascinating and curious. Um, and I find that entertaining and I find, yeah, I mean, entertainment isn't the word that I use, even when I want to read like a big meaty novel that sweeps me away. I think the mm-hmm. questions for me are, is it immersive and does it change the way I look at my world, either internally or externally? And right. I bet this book will stick even mm-hmm. with all the complaints, this will stick in a way that um, other novels that have a smaller scope just don't. Um, or yeah, because you know the, the the characters largely have disappeared in my mind. Like Ryder yeah. was saying earlier, the the idea is the fascinating thing. The people the journey, believe, yeah. yeah, the journey is the people like the characters don't matter because now I feel like I have like I was a character in this book by witnessing mm-hmm. the journey right. of nature basically right um which is you know w- which is an unusual experience I think in reading a novel yeah. yeah or I mean I can't think of any work of art that has really quite done that like I mean the train dream sort of did that for me yeah, that's true. Similar. You know? I but mean, in, a, I get... in a smaller place, obviously. Yeah. So not to keep going back to it, but Moby Dick is so similar. It's like we think of it as this plot. The What we think of as the plot of Moby Dick is actually just the motivation of one character. So right. Ahab's need, like all-consuming need to kill this whale is, that's not plot. That's just like a fact of obsession. Um, which you know within one second of meeting this character. Um, But 
what sticks about Moby Dick and what sticks about those things is you take on like this feeling of like you're on this ship with this huge diversity of people. They're all there for different reasons and they've all kind of bought into this obsession together. And as writers saying, like, it's about consumption. Moby Dick is about like, what can we like wildly consume <laughs> in right. our quest mm-hmm. to feed our culture? Like that is a very sticky idea um, that is, listen, it's a super boring book at times, but like what is more entertaining than this obsessive quality and dark, dark criticism of who we are as Americans? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, it is an indictment of America. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I, I read um, I read an interview with him um, somewhere uh, talking about his uh, what made him start to write the book. And he was teaching up at Stanford and Palo Alto is is very near to where writer grew up near where to I, where I grew up as well. And you can't live up there and not experience the Redwoods. And you also can't live up there and not experience activism. Um, <laughs> and so I'm also sort of fascinated, like as as an author, like. Oh, he was living up there teaching class at Stanford and saw all this stuff and then wrote a 500-page Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. That's focused. You know, that that is also really sort of an indictment on academic culture. Yes, on top yes, of we haven't yeah. talked about that. It's true. Like, it is an indictment <laughs> of academic culture, which I appreciated um, as, a, as a renegade academic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, like... The, the actual experience of him being somewhere and seeing something and writing a book about it like that is really kind of cool. And, and I appreciate that artistically where he's interested in something because he's living somewhere and decides to explore it further and then all of a sudden it becomes a novel. In most of our cases, it was just like, oh, I'm going to watch an eight-part Netflix documentary about it and then I'm never going to think about it again. <laughs> yeah, it's, this could easily have been... Uh essay in a magazine or a nonfiction right. book that only a thousand people read but he's a novelist so yeah he wrote the novel and Which, that you know, we should be grateful for, for him. that yeah we are we're rich if you're listening he's a big fan just Thanks. like the, just like the author of Circe who's listening and and was concerned about my opinions on her book um thank you rich for for making this move um have you guys read any of his other books before I no, don't think so. Oh gosh, you really should. He's I mean, if you like this, you'll you'll like uh you'll like Echo Maker for sure. Um but you know, he's I think he's just a, a brilliant thinker. You know, he was a, a computer programmer before he became a novelist. Mm. Um and so you i I'm always interested in these writers that are physicians or scientists because they end up looking at things at such a granular level that you can always yeah. see it in their narrative in a different way than than the three of us might do it, um, where they're always looking at the roots of these things. And, and not to, you know, no pun intended, but having <laughs> someone who wants to look at the root of trees and their relationship to us um, and fictionalize it, that's it. I mean, you got to have a different kind of mind for that, which well, is what and he has. One thing that is you know, hard to understand about programmers unless you know some of them is they're very uh, idealistic and like believe that technology and progress are will ultimately work out. Um, and so right. that is fascinating that he would come around to this kind of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. 
I mean, good for him. Because I can't do it. (laughs) 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 But Echo Maker is weird because it's about a guy who um, has a head injury and thinks everyone has been replaced by clones. Um, What's that? Crap grass syndrome? You guys know about this? No. No. Oh, God. It's, It's a... So you you get a traumatic brain injury and um, you come out of it thinking that everyone you know in the entire world has been replaced by doppelgangers and clones and aliens. That's and terrifying. Like that. oh, yeah. And then the people telling you, look, this is a, a syndrome that you have. This is not real. Or They're it's just another you. one of the aliens telling right. you that I'm not really an alien. Um, oh so God. it's a fascinating Amazing book, and I it might have won the Pulitzer too. It was up for the Pulitzer, and you know, it came out like fifteen years ago or something. Um, really good book, absolutely worth uh, worth a read. Uh, yeah, I was blown away. So I'm gonna check out whatever this guy has written before. Twelve books. I, I'd never never heard of him. Which you know. really, yeah, that is so weird to me. He's uh, like he's an American treasure, though he might be British. <laughs> <laughs> Where is Richard? Where is he from? Hold on, let's see where Richard Powers is. Yeah, no, since I was carrying around this book, you know, everyone, a lot of people brought him up and was like, oh, yeah, his books are great. And, uh, you know, apparently very science based and interesting, like, and really heavy on research. And and so, uh, like, this, but this just blew me away. I'm so on board. And especially the beginning, like, I would say, like, the first 150 pages of this book, I hadn't, I haven't felt that way about a book in, like, maybe decades it blew my mind like i was reminded of the when i first read steinbeck when i was a kid like reading east of eden when i was 13 and i was just like what we're gonna follow whole generations and they're all gonna be related and i'm gonna be able to see these you know now i look at east of eden and i i kind of want to reread it but i it it feels kind of quaint to me but at the time you know when you've only read like right YA novels and Stephen King books, like the idea of like five generations and, you know, the mm-hmm. Cain and Abe's Abel story, it was like, it just blew my mind. And like, yeah. you know, and this book, when I, when I realized the scale it was operating on and how it was going to keep me entertained by, by connecting fucking trees, I was like, yes, let's do this. Like you are, you are changing the way I think about literature. Like, please. Um, and, and thank you know, God we'd read Circe, so I finally had a backbone in Greek and Roman mythology to understand some of the illusions in this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, can we read a book? Moby um, Dick. Let's like do Moby Dick. pages long. We're going to do Moby Dick next. next one. <laughs> can we do a shorter book <laughs> with one point of view? Yeah. Uh, maybe a cartoon. A graphic novel sounds lovely. Come do on. Why don't we do like Catcher in the Rye or something? We'll just... Uh, no, I can't read Catcher in the Rye again. No more Catcher in the Rye. Well, we'll figure out something, listeners. Don't worry about it. We'll find something. Something short and sweet that you can read along yes. with us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> listeners, if you're wondering, when's the next time we're going to read a book that you want to read? Just you wait. <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.